Good morning, everyone, and let's pray. Uh, Father God, this morning we ask that you would give us understanding of your word. We pray that by your spirit you would work in us and help us to live according to that word. Amen. Just a few months ago, the Olympics were on in Tokyo. Athletes from across the world come together to determine who the greatest is. Some train for years, some even decades, to win a gold medal, to adorn it round their neck as a trophy, to say that no one else in the world can do what they did. They are the greatest. Well, we might not all want a gold medal or be elite athletes, but I think that if the opportunity to be the greatest at something came our way, if it was easily within our grasp, I think we would grab it as fast as we could. Who wouldn't want to feel powerful or significant or to be remembered or to feel your life means something? I think we all would want it if we could get it easily enough. Winning a gold medal is a pretty incredible feat, but medals tarnish, world records continue to be broken, and ultimately these things won't last forever. So what is it that makes someone truly great? What about in the eternal kingdom, God's kingdom? What is true greatness in the kingdom of heaven? Last week in Mark, we saw Jesus respond to a rich man, a man who had everything, a man the disciples thought would easily get into heaven, only for the man to turn away saddened from Jesus because he loved his possessions more than God. And we also saw what it takes to follow Jesus, and how amazed the disciples were at his words. And so Jesus with his disciples and the other people with them can continue on their journey to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. Verse 32. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. Once again, we're about to hear Jesus predict his death. And we have heard this twice before. The first was in Mark chapter 8, verse 31, and the second in chapter 9, verse 31. And in this prediction in chapter 10, it has more detail than the previous predictions. This time it mentions the destination, Jerusalem, and that is where they are heading. Verse 33. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Jesus' death on the cross will be humiliating. The Messiah the disciples have heard proclaim the kingdom of heaven, be a leader for them, do amazing miracles and raise people from the dead, will be mocked, spat on, beaten and finally killed. But as Jesus says this, some of the disciples have manipulation and greed on their minds. Verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right 
and the other at your left in your glory. Isn't this just shocking? Like how inappropriate and selfish can you get? Even though they call him a teacher, they clearly haven't understood what Jesus is teaching them. Jesus has just said he's going to be mocked, spat on, beaten, and killed. And James and John toss all that aside and only care about themselves. They want to be exalted over everyone else. And did you notice that they even tried to manipulate Jesus by asking him to agree to their request before they ask it? They say, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And what a request. They expect Jesus to give them whatever they want. They want status and power. They want the best places in the kingdom of heaven. They want to be the greatest. Well, we might sit back and think that we'd never ask such a thing. We might think to ourselves, I would never ask that of Jesus. I'm far too humble. But I think if we are honest with ourselves, we could all be tempted to want the best seat at the table, the highest income, the biggest house, the nicest car, maybe even the best piece of pork crackling on your plate for dinner. That'd be me. And isn't it because we all want greatness for ourselves? Because we think we deserve it. James and John, they don't know what greatness is in God's kingdom. They don't really have a clue. They don't really have a clue about those places in heaven or the suffering that could come with them. They just know they want them. And on top of all that, they can't do what Jesus is going to do and they naively think they can. Verse 38. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, You will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. James and John think they can do what Jesus will do. They think they can drink the same cup as Jesus. They are answering this before the crucifixion. They are answering this before they get to Gethsemane, where we read in Mark chapter 14, verse 33, that Jesus is deeply distressed and troubled about going to the cross. In verse 34, Jesus says, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And a little later in that same passage, he falls to the ground and prays, Abba Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus is in anguish about what he will face. Drinking the cup means facing God's judgment, facing God's righteous punishment for the sin of humanity, which Jesus would take for us on the cross. And where Jesus mentions baptism here, he's not talking about the baptism of John the Baptist, but he's talking about being flooded, about being buried by God's judgment, and about himself being the one who is meant to do it. And what do James and John say? We can. Yeah, we can drink the cup, Jesus. No worries.
And Jesus says, well, in some way, you will get some of the cup. And Jesus is referring to the suffering that James and John will later face for proclaiming the message of Jesus and the cross after Jesus' resurrection and ascension. This doesn't mean that they will contribute to Jesus' unique mission of atonement for sin on the cross. But their request doesn't matter anyway, because Jesus says that those places are not for him to give, but that those places are for those they have been prepared for long ago by God. Well, the disciples are not too pleased about James and John's request, probably because they didn't think of it first. Verse 41. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. You see, the disciples have argued about who is the greatest before. And this happened just after Jesus predicted his death for the second time. The disciples still haven't got it. They are too busy arguing about who is the greatest among themselves and not even caring about what Jesus is going to do for them on the cross. So Jesus gets them together and tells them what true greatness really is. Verse 42. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. The disciples think that greatness is like what the Gentiles have, lording it over everyone below them. But Jesus takes that and turns it on its head. He says, don't be like the world. If you want to be great, then you have to be small, be humble, and serve. And then Jesus drives the point home. Verse 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. If there is anyone who has ever walked this earth that is entitled to lord it over everyone, it's Jesus. God the Father loves him and is well pleased with him. He has the authority on earth to forgive sins. We have seen him heal many people, cast out demons. We have seen him feed the 4,000, the 5,000, calm the storm and be transfigured. And this is just some of what we've seen so far in Mark's gospel. There is still so much more that could be said. But Jesus doesn't come to be served, but to serve. And how does he serve? He goes to the cross. Nobody takes his life from him, but he lays it down. The ultimate service. He pays the ultimate price. He dies in the place of ruined sinners so they don't have to face God's righteous, eternal punishment for their sin. He gives his life as a ransom for many. As they continue on their way to Jerusalem, they pass through the city of Jericho where they meet a blind man who has perfect sight. Verse 46. Then they came to Jericho 
As Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, hardly someone of greatness in society. Actually, probably one of the lowest. Overlooked by probably everyone as they pass by. And his cloak is the only possession he has. Well, Bartimaeus, as he sits by the roadside begging, hears that it's Jesus coming. And what he calls Jesus is remarkable. Son of David which is one of the most meaningful titles in all the Old Testament for the Messiah, God's chosen king. Because the long-promised deliverer of Israel was prophesied to come out of David's line. And it's the only place in Mark that someone recognizes Jesus in this way. Even though he is blind, he sees who Jesus is very clearly. And so he shouts, and no one is going to stop him shouting. Verse 48. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, Call him. So they called to the blind man, Cheer up on your feet, he's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. The people told him to be quiet. Jesus doesn't have time for you, they say. You're not important enough. But Jesus doesn't overlook Bartimaeus. He stops and he calls him. And when Bartimaeus is called by Jesus, he throws aside his cloak, which is the only possession he has, and he ecstatically jumps to his feet and comes to Jesus. And Jesus shows the disciples an example of what greatness looks like by serving. Verse 51. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus. Your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. What do you want me to do for you. Where have we heard that before? Jesus' response here with Bartimaeus is the same as it is with James and John. Only one request is a greedy grasp for power. The other is a plea for mercy. Bartimaeus knows he's in no position to make demands. He knows he needs mercy. And as Jesus heals his blindness, what does he do? He doesn't go taking all the sights the city of Jericho has to offer. No, he follows Jesus. And where is Jesus heading? To Jerusalem, to the cross. What is true greatness? What is greatness in the kingdom of heaven? It's serving. We are great in God's kingdom when we serve others. But we might say to ourselves, I can't serve like Jesus. I can't heal the blind. Well, no, we might not be able to heal the blind. But we can help people see the truth of God's word. 
We can open up the Bible with anyone, our family, our friends, co-workers, whoever. And again, we might say to ourselves, I can't serve like Jesus. I can't give my life in atonement for the sin of humanity. Well, no, but we can give of our life in other ways. We can give of our time, our energy and other resources God has given us. And we can serve in any number of ways. We can serve as godly husbands and wives. We can serve as godly parents, grandparents and children in our families. We can serve in our church. We can serve by helping to set up and pack up chairs, clean up the hall and provide morning tea. We can teach and help out at Sunday school. We can serve in our community. We can open up our homes to others. We can give to those who are in need. We can serve as missionaries in other countries. There are so many ways we can serve, and I've only just scratched the surface. But the thing is, we will have to lay aside our desire for worldly greatness in order to serve others. So how much should we serve? Where is the gold medal, the world record standard of serving we can look to? You'll find it in Jesus. Jesus doesn't go to Jerusalem to sit on a throne. He goes to hang on a cross. He gives his life up for others. Jesus gives his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life for us. We thank you that the King of Heaven came and was spat on and beaten and hung on a cross to bring salvation to us. Lord, we ask for forgiveness when we have misunderstood what greatness is to you, when we have greedily grasped for power for ourselves. Lord, we ask that you would make us great in your kingdom and help us to lay aside our desire for greatness in our own eyes so that we may serve you and others like Jesus did. Amen.